We return to our interview with Matthew Howe, where I'm asking him about the potential sharing of information by the Taliban to the general public about the pending agreement for the United States to withdraw by May 1st, 2021. Well, could the the Taliban release that agreement if the United States was not? That, That would be one question. The other question I wanted to ask you, interject to have you address too, is that apparently, again, according to this Tolo News, this, this news site out of Afghanistan, they're reporting that the Taliban has not yet made that decision on that U.S. request to extend the deal and, and, and is asking that first their 7,000 prisoners should be released and that the group's officials are removed from the U.N. blacklist, which I think speaks to probably some of those annexes you're talking about. Can you speak to that? Yeah, so part of the agreement was that, and this is this is a you know a, a, another flaw of the agreement. The U.S. does not control the prisoners in Afghanistan. We, we do indirectly, but they're uh-huh. under the direct control of the Afghan government. And so this agreement, basically, you know, right, the right. United States said the Afghan government would release these prisoners without uh-huh. consulting the Afghan government about it. Uh-huh. So you know, the Afghan government learns that it's supposed to release all these Taliban prisoners via the news when this agreement is announced. You know, that, that, that kind of, that's one example of how flawed this agreement was in the sense that how it was envisioned that it was going to work. You know, one thing to sit down to somebody and tell the Taliban, yes, sit down with the Taliban and say, yes, we'll get these prisons agree- released, but then you haven't even spoken with the Afghan government about it. So there was a lot of problems with this agreement just in the way it was going to function and be executed. Very right, poorly right. Uh, structured. And with the Taliban, though, one of the things that I have learned over these last 20 years and in my role uh, with the State Department when I was over in Iraq as well, one thing I learned from these insurgent groups, and maybe it's a cultural difference between Americans and, and people in Iraq and Afghanistan, these groups, they mean what they say. And they right. do what they say. Mm-hmm. And so that's to your point about, uh, Pedro, the Taliban releasing these secret annexes, I don't believe they would ever do it because they said they would not do it. Uh, so that, right? I mean, and that's right. so different than the American way of politics. Which is leaking those documents. Right? <laughs> Which would be, right, you know, right, or, right, or right. reneging on something. Yeah, and that's yeah, why yeah. I'm very concerned that the Taliban will not agree to an extension. I hope they do agree to an extension. I, I don't think they, it doesn't if, look like if, they if are. They, if they, because I think mm-hmm. the, the problem that's going to happen is that if there's no extension and American troops and NATO troops are there on May 2nd, the Taliban will start killing them on May 2nd. Yeah, before we go and, there, though, let me ask you this, because I think it's really important what you've just laid out so that people understand is that, and I might have it wrong, so correct me if I'm not laying this out correctly, but so you have these annexes and they include at the very least, these two issues of prisoners and getting off a U.N. blacklist that the United States may not have independent power in which to do. But that's all aside from the promise. One thing that we do know is that there's a promise to get the U.S. troops out by May 1st, period. If they are not out, regardless of whether the 7,000 prisoners are released, or they're, they're actually trying to negotiate that based on the United States' request to not leave based on the United States request to stay another, what, three to six months is what they're asking for uh, initially, which, as we say, we're very doubtful, at least I'm very doubtful would be the case. But anyhow, with that being said, please just kind of confirm that interpretation. And then please do tell us 
what you would expect happens on May 2nd if the United States does not uh, have the troops out, nor have they reached an interim agreement to supplant the original one. Yeah, I think that's correct. You know, and and to take it a step farther about this, this idea about the extension, why would the Taliban agree to that extension? The United States has... Well, also, too, look, look with Iran, right, with the way the United States left the agreement with Iran, the, the JCPOA, right, the, the nuclear agreement with Iran, the way Donald Trump just, just left it, and the fact that the Biden administration has not reentered it, the Biden administration is keeping the sanctions on Iran, right? So the, the, the Taliban, why would they think that mm-hmm. if they agree to an extension that the United States would honor that, mm-hmm. right? If I was the Taliban, I would be thinking... To come three to six months from now, the Americans are just going to stay. Right. Right. So why? So so what happens then? Of course, though, the, the the real danger here, Pedro, is that May second comes, the Taliban start killing Americans. Then, well, uh, that gives every hardliner on all sides of this all the reason they need to keep this war going forever. Mm-hmm. And I, I guarantee, what happens with the United States with Joe Biden is the fact the Taliban is now killing Americans. That's the excuse to keep American forces there, maybe to send. I don't think you're going to see Joe Biden send 10,000 or 15,000 more troops, but he may send three or four or 5,000 more troops, you know. But more importantly, it keeps the war going. Right. right. You know, and it gives the the hardliners on the Taliban. Because within the Taliban, you have two divisions, right? You have those who want to negotiate because they're tired of war. They've been fighting for 40 years. Their grandchildren are now fighting. Right, they don't want to see this continue, and then you have the hardliners. You have those who who defeated the Soviets. They've been beating the Americans for the last twenty years. The Americans surged under Obama. They withstood that the Taliban. They came out stronger. They now, as you mentioned earlier, control more territory than they have since two thousand and one. Right. So, so basically, God is on their side. You know, if you will, uh, why negotiate at all? So, you, you, and as well too, that the Americans renege on this deal, that gives the hardliners in the Taliban, they say to the, the people who do want to negotiate, why would you trust them? Look, they've already lied. They mm-hmm. lied to the Iranians, they've lied to us, they've lied to the Iraqis, it's on and on and on. You can't trust these people. The only way we're ever going to get them to leave is to make them leave by force. Right. So this is a very serious, very difficult, dangerous position. And yeah, come May 2nd, if American troops are still there without an extension, I think that's how it plays out. The Taliban starts killing Americans, and then the Americans, uh, the Afghan government says, look, they're killing your people now. The Americans, particularly those hawks in Congress and on CNN and MSNBC and Fox, they all say in the Washington Post and New York Times, they say, look, we can't leave now because the Taliban are killing Americans again. Let and, me ask and you this. it starts over again, and, right. and how do you ever begin a process again? once the process has failed, mm-hmm. uh, as this one has been. So this, this May 1st deadline is very important. Very good. I think also that there are many people, including perhaps including Joe Biden and more of the neoconservative group, you know, since he was such a major actor in the Iraq thing as well, that know all this very well, that it's not a matter of if they kill U.S., soldiers they know there will be some that will occur and they are very likely based on that understanding acknowledging that that that's the type of outcome that they would not mind in the sense of it gives them the pretext to stay forever you know and to start the ramping up the bombing and stuff 
Um, let me ask you from a absolutely, from, absolutely, from, that's, that's absolutely correct. Yep. From another perspective, though, from the Taliban's perspective, and I'm no fan of the Taliban either. What I'm a fan of is getting our men and women home, protecting the Afghan civilians from any more of this two decade more war. And I guess my question would be, as opposed to an open ended, hey, we need three to six months type of thing. Is there any scenario where you see the Taliban saying that bringing in other witnesses to the actual agreement and saying, look, we'll give you 30 days for your tactical, this, that, or the other, but they all have to be out. And, you know, that, that, that type of much more concrete type of understanding, because if it isn't just a tactical thing, which it's not, I don't believe, of getting our troops out, then the longer term goal, certainly the Taliban would understand that if once they start re-killing U.S. soldiers and NATO troops, that it's going to you know, go on forever. Do you see that as being an option diplomatically in any form or fashion that there could be another counter type of deal that's much more specific? I, I don't even know what, like, like for you. Yeah, no, I, I understand what you're getting at. Yeah, and and yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, hey, the Taliban are, are people. They're not, you know, I mean, like they're, they're, they're amenable to reason and, and logic and to right. uh, good argument as anyone else. The problem is, is that that's what these last 14 months were supposed to have been. Right, absolutely. Right, that's what, you know, and, and it's interesting you say that because I, a number of years ago, in 2010 or 2011, I met with a representative of the Taliban, and we talked about this, you know, and he explained to me, look, in 1989, when the Soviet Union left, we didn't expect them to leave, like, in a day. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you look at the way the Soviet Union pulled out, in 19, you know, eight, 1988 through 1989, when they pull out, they take the better part of a year, mm-hmm. you know, and if they take a better part of the year to do it. And, and you know, they, they, it, yeah, they're not, these are, they're not, uh, they understand, yeah, you got to put guys in trucks, you got to drive places, and you got to get them in helicopters, and you got to get them to a place, you know, and they get on 747s or whatever, you know, what I mean? they understand the process, but that's what these last 14 or 15 months were supposed to have been, mm-hmm. you know, and the, the fact now that you have an American president saying, look, we can't leave for tactical reasons. You know, the, the Taliban know that's just not true. And also, yeah, also, Biden, else does. also, Biden could have come out his very first day in office and, and started this renegotiation, right? I mean, you know, we're, we're three months into his, yeah. months into his administration, and only now, a month from the date, is there's, they knew they weren't going to come out. That's this game and testing the waters of, of, of international whatever, I guess. But listen, we, we are visiting with Matt Howe, and Matt is a former State Department employee, but also is a former Marine, and he also absolutely understands what war means, which is unfortunately not well known among people that are always promoting war. And I guess I, I wanted to, this is a really fascinating history that you're sharing and then and currently, but can you explain the military conditions on the ground, the, the concern that this Taliban group will pretty much overrun the whole country of Afghanistan? What does that mean for the Afghan population there relative to what they've been through these last 20 years of U.S. occupation or U.S. war? Well, you know, really they've been through war for 40 years. It's been nonstop for 40 years. Right, 20 right. of the last 20 have been direct, you know, U.S. Uh, involvement. Yeah, and 
you know, a lot of you, you, you'll hear a lot of commentary now about the Taliban is going to overtake Kabul, and, and I have two thoughts on that. Few thoughts on that, but but the, the primary ones are that when the Taliban took Kabul in, in, in the 1990s, they did so because they had the backing of Pakistan. Pakistan provided a lot of, of assistance, particularly money, and I do not think they will have that level of support from Pakistan. This, this time. The, the Pakistanis, of course, would love a client state in Afghanistan, but they know that's not possible. And they know that a Taliban seizure of Kabul is only going to lead to more instability. And so that's what Pakistan wants. They want stability more than anything else. And so I do not think you see a Taliban takeover of, of Kabul the way you did, say, in the 1990s. Or, and if you do, I think what happens is, and the Taliban certainly understand this, the comparison is, is made to what happened in Syria and Iraq, mm-hmm. where the Islamic State took over cities like Raqqa or Mosul. And I think the Taliban know that if they violently take over Kabul, uh, the way the Islamic State took over those cities in eastern Syria and western and northern Iraq, that in two years' time, Kabul will look like Raqqa, Mosul, Tikrit, Fallujah, etc. look like now, which means that the U.S. Air Force and U.S. Navy will have reduced it to, to absolute rubble. And so I, I think you have that that keeps the Taliban from getting on the road and overtaking Kabul. I really do think what is possible, if you do not force it to be settled by violence, and that's the problem, is that we are basically creating the circumstances where the only option is violence, right? And then once violence begins, violence continues, violence begets violence, it becomes this cycle. And so as the United States and Taliban start fighting again, right, the violence accelerates. But if you do allow a process to occur where the Taliban can claim victory in some degree, and they control the parts of the country that they believe are important to them, particularly the south and east of the country, that you can have some type of negotiated settlement. I do believe that that's possible. And I've spoken with, I know that there are members of the Taliban who believe that as well. Unfortunately, there are those who believe that the only way to to win is to achieve it through a full victory. And if that happens, if you do have, as as I say, you know, as we, we discussed, if they do take Kabul in a fashion like the Islamic State took Mosul in 2014, the result will be uh, that Kabul will look like Mosul did in 2017. Tens of thousands of people dead, tens of thousands of people buried, you know, uh, missing still. The city is completely destroyed and devastated. And, I, and again, I think the Taliban understand that. But they're also not going to surrender, and they're not going to give up on the fight they've been fighting for decades now. They're um, immo- yeah. immovable objects. It's interesting when you look at said some notes at the height of the war, there were somewhat 100,000 American troops in Afghanistan, and there were tens of thousands of other troops from about 40 nations in this U.S.-led NATO coalition. You know, we started this, what the cruise missile strike started on October 7th of 2001. So like you say, this is just 20 years since our intervention, but out of the 3,550 NATO coalition deaths in Afghanistan as of uh, about a year ago, back in February, and we haven't lost anyone since, nearly 2,400 had been American. I guess the last thing I wanted to maybe speak to is there, there's a piece that was written by, by this guy, Mujib Mashal, in the New York Times. 
and and this was in that February period back in 2020, he indicated in his article, in recent years, the brunt of fighting has been borne by Afghan soldiers and police officers, many of them American-trained, but even some of them came to see U.S. troops as invaders, turning their guns on their American and NATO partners. And more than 150 American and NATO troops have been killed in such green-on-blue attacks, including two American servicemen gunned down this month, again, February of 2020. And, and I guess that's get our troops out of harm's way. Our own allies are, are not our own allies, apparently, in this deal. Um, can you speak to that? Is there concern that the existing government that we're supporting is, is an unknown quantity? Well, yeah, I mean, the existing government we're supporting is, is credibly corrupt. Uh, all the elections that have taken place there, but particularly elections since 2009, have been uh, massively fraudulent. I mean, these are, these are Ill- illegitimate governments by any standard, but they're kept in power by the United States and the foreign community. Mm. They are predatory governments. They are, it's, a, it's a kleptocracy. The, the government in Kabul continually is rated by Transparency International as one of the most corrupt governments in the world. And, you know, that, that's the government. The security forces of the Afghan government, whether it be the army, the intelligence services, the police, roughly one-third of all prisoners in Afghanistan are tortured. I mean, so this is, this is a government that is not only massively corrupt, but is guilty of massive human rights violations. And in a third part is that, as well, the, uh, you know, you hear a lot about the poppies and the opiates and the narcotics coming to Afghanistan. Well, the major player in that, the biggest participant in that, the one that makes it all possible is the Afghan government. Wow. So the Afghan government is, is, is the drug lord of Afghanistan, basically. The Taliban are involved, too, yeah. but the Afghan government is the one that is, is most involved. Uh, and so... You know, you have this, this, this government that we've sent our, our troops over for. But the, the other thing about, you know, having our, our men and women die over there is we also have our men and women killing over there. I agree. You know what I mean? And, I, I and that, that is the really something that, you know, is this, what, you know, that level. And so, yeah, it is. It's by, by any means you look at this, Pedro, uh, the United States should not be involved. You know, you, you can make the argument the United States can be involved diplomatically, that we can provide foreign assistance. But the way we are going about it right now, there is no moral justification for it whatsoever. But also on a practical level, it, this has been incredibly counterproductive. Uh, look, right. in, in 2001, mm-hmm. the State Department's list of terror groups they listed four terror groups, right, for both Afghanistan and Pakistan, four, okay? Now in 2021, they list more than 20. Right. You know, in 2001, al-Qaeda had 400 people total around the world, 400. It's fascinating. And today, right? and now yeah, they have, yeah. what, tens of thousands of members. They've got branches all over the world. They've controlled entire cities in different countries. I mean, so even if, even if you've got no concern about morality, no concern about the, the, what we are doing, I mean, we, the United States, is doing in Afghanistan, killing people, the notion how, how counterproductive this has been should be reason enough right. to stop what we're doing. Anything is better than what we're doing, including doing nothing. It may reveal the real foreign policy that we have. I mean, because, I mean, you just went through what I think is just the most important point, that our war on terror 
has multiplied terrorism exponentially. Therefore, exponentially, either, either, yes. either therefore we're an inept military force, which we are not, or arguably it was our intention, but certainly it was the outcome. Uh, and somehow yeah. to protect those so they could fight for us in other venues and such. So, and that's what we've been documenting on this show. And then lastly, it you know, you make a really poignant point when you, talk about the government of Afghanistan that we're been supporting. And and I just kept on thinking as you were describing all the corruption and everything else and the inhumanity and in the drug running and all of that, you know, our other great friend is Saudi Arabia, you know, yet we're going around the world claiming that we need to overthrow governments because they don't respect human rights in Libya and Iraq and on and on and on. So listen, we're out of time, but I wanted to ask you for people that are interested in some of your work, Matt, can you share a way we can access your writings? You've, pr- you've provided an, a profoundly important history today. I'm really grateful for it, but I, I want people to have an opportunity to study it in more depth. Sure. I have a website. It's MatthewHo.com. So M-A-T-T-H-E-W-H-O-H.com. I'm also with the Center for International Policy, and I'm part of a group called the Eisenhower Media Network. And if you just Google either the Center for International Policy or Eisenhower Media Network, you'll find some of my stuff. More importantly, you'll find the work of of other people who are doing, you know, who are speaking about similar things, working on similar uh, issues. Well, listen, I want to thank you for your service as a Marine, and I want to thank you, if it's not inappropriate, even more so for your work since you have become active with this type of analysis. It's just invaluable. So thank you so much, my friend, and we will look forward to inviting you back on in the near future as May 1st date approaches. Absolutely. Be happy to do so. Thank you for having me on, Pedro. All right, man. Great. In closing, just a couple of remarks. The war has cost $2 trillion over the last 20 years, not to mention all of the deaths. But who benefits from this $2 trillion? I think you can figure that out for yourself. The war industries do. And on top of that, the Afghan papers that the Washington Post produced, as was alluded to by our guest tonight, indicates how our government continues to lie to us about what's really going on in the world around us in our foreign policy issues. And in fact, a recent article by the New York Times in March still indicated that we were understating our troops by a 1,000 out of a relatively small group of 3,500, and that we have methods of classifying information, more not to protect secrets of the U.S., but to deceive the American public. And that is very disconcerting. In this article, the United States has a 1,000 more troops in Afghanistan than it disclosed by the New York Times on March the 14th, 2021. The number was disclosed, and it was according to the U.S., European, and Afghan officials. That adds another layer of complexity, the New York Times writes, to the swirling debate at the White House over whether to stick with the deal struck by the Trump administration and the Taliban that calls for removing the remaining American forces by May 1st, end quote. Note here how a diplomatic deal that the United States agreed to and signed off on is presented by the New York Times as no big deal if we want to renege on it or not. The calling card of a truly arrogant nation is evident. Instead of honoring an agreement as a matter of character, we only honor those we do not choose to break. It reminds me of some of the nonchalance and standard operating procedure we used with regarding American-Indian treaties that were regularly broken in the past. We violated them, discarded them, 
whenever our economic or domestic or foreign policy colonial interests benefited from it? Whatever happened to the ethical bond of a gentleman or a gentlewoman's handshake agreement? See you next week. Okay, stay tuned for Emo Diaries is up next on KOOP.org. We take you out as we do every week with Land of Naivety. See you next week. Psychology